on katetalk.co.za, on the app, on DSTV channel 885, and across the city on 567 AM. Join the conversation. This is Cape Talk. This is Cape Talk. 23 minutes to 10 o'clock starting, just a little bit later today. I had to get some advertisements out of the way, but every Friday morning after 9.30, you get to quiz the naked scientist, Dr. Chris Smith, with your science and natural history-related questions. Dr. Chris Smith, I hope you are well this Friday morning. How are things? I'm in very good shape. How are you? Excellent, excellent. I'm going to jump straight into it, and with fuel price being very top of mind in South Africans' minds. Um, I think this is a nice question to start off with uh, about volume. Hi, Dr. Chris. I'm having an argument with my wife. She fills up a tank to the brim once a month. I fill my tank halfway and fill up later when I need it. I, I feel that a full tank adds extra weight that affects fuel consumption. Please tell me that I am right. That's a message from Isaac. Well, both are right, potentially. Why do I say that? Why do I qualify? A, to avoid domestic rows, but B, because it will depend on the circumstances. Now, if you're making lots of long journeys, then the chances are, if you're on a long run, you need a lot of fuel and you don't want to then be wasting time driving around looking for a petrol station where you're in unfamiliar territory because that will take time lab mileage. On the other hand, if you're on lots of short journeys where you're always in your home neighbourhood, familiar territory, you know where the petrol station is, you know how much fuel it takes to do most of your journeys, you can factor in a trip to the garage into your daily life and therefore you're not adding extra mileage, extra time and inconvenience to your journey to keep the tank at lower levels and fill up only when you need to. The benefit of driving around with an emptier tank is exactly as you say, fuel adds weight and when the engine is moving the car around, the more weight it has to move, the more work it has to do. Where does the work come from? It comes from the fuel. Therefore, to do more work, you have to burn more fuel. Therefore, it's costing you more. And also, if you're in heavy-duty traffic, if you're stuck in traffic jams and things, and some of those traffic jams are in rush hour around Cape Town, pretty serious, uh, you're, you're continuously accelerating and decelerating a lot of weight from that fuel you're lugging around unnecessarily. That's also going to add wear and tear on your car and burn out the brakes. So, bottom line, long journeys or lots of longer trips into unfamiliar territory, probably better to run with a full tank. Lots of short local trips in familiar territory where you can easily factor it in and where you're going to probably encounter lots of traffic jams. I'd go for running the tank at a lower level, but always make sure you've got enough for emergencies, of course. Chris, I don't know if this is a, there's a scientific explanation uh, engineering or structural explanation or whether it is just instrumental. I have found, and this is purely anecdotal from my experience, that my my gauge on my petrol tank, I'm a person who fills up and I try to remind myself when my tank is halfway and it just I just I, I just never want to be stuck without petrol. But well, I, I, find I drive that an electric my... car. So uh, the... <laughs> I've, uh, I've, I've, I've I've gone into those those realms. Yeah. <laughs> so 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 when my my gauge is on full, the time that it takes from full to halfway, it takes a good while. But the period between halfway to empty goes very very quickly. Is that just the instrumental 
um, issue or is there a some sort of reason why it, it, it appears that um, from full to halfway takes a bit of time, but from halfway to empty, it goes very, very quickly? These gauges are just there as a guide. They are not intended to be nanometer precision accurate. If you're flying an aircraft or a space rocket and you need to know how many grams of fuel that you've got and how long you can run for, and it's a matter of life and death, that's different. And those sorts of gauges work in a very different way. When you are going domestically around the place, those fuel gauges are relatively poorly calibrated. They often are inaccurate to, across the scale so some parts of them will be better than others as in exactly as you say first half t- drops like a stone then seems to take ages to go the rest of the way really you have to just do what you do which is get used to what happens in your car more modern cars are better because they also know what the rate of fuel burn is and the computer on the car will be integrating what your driving behaviour is, what your average driving is, even what your route's going to be, and it can work out what your likely range is. And many of the modern vehicles do that very well, and therefore they have a better idea as to how much fuel's gone in the car. This also matters because for some cars, particularly diesel cars, there are additives being added to the engine, to the fuel on its way through, to clean out things like the diesel particulate filter. And so the car needs to know how much fuel it's got through in order to know how much of that stuff to add and when. Some cars are better at doing that than others. Others just do it on an ad hoc basis. How many times has Leicester opened the fuel cap? Believe it or not, they they honestly do log that and they assume it's a full tank. So some cars better than others. You just have to learn the behaviour for your car and ultimately make the switch if you can afford it and if it's practical to an electric car because those ones have a much better system of working out what your consumption rate is and therefore what your anticipated range is. Yeah, when customs and duties makes uh, uh, electric vehicles a little bit more uh, affordable in South Africa, maybe uh, it could be a, a all-round conversion from gas guzzlers to electric. But let's go to a quick voice note, 0725671567. Let's have a listen. A question for Dr. Smith from Charles in the City Bowl. A lot of athletes after physical exertion have taken ice bath. Can you tell me, is this beneficial and what does it do? Thank you. One of the reasons for taking an ice bath is the same reason that if you bump your head, bash your hand, knock your knee, you put a cold packet of peas wrapped up in a tea towel on there for a while. The rationale for doing this is that when you use muscles or traumatised tissue in the extreme, then you've, you've done a bit of damage. And in the aftermath of doing damage, there is inflammation. This is a natural process by which the body repairs itself. So if you inflame tissue, you bring in various parts of the immune system, you attract stem cells to the area which can then turn into the right sorts of cells to put the damage right, you augment the blood flow. But this kind of inflammation may not always be useful it may be that it actually does a bit of damage in the short term in order to be better in the long term and if you're a performance athlete and you're doing this a lot you don't necessarily want that process happening there and then so some people advocate when you have had serious rigorous exercise that will have done some damage to muscles because it does when you when you go really hell for leather down the track you are ripping apart your muscles in the same way as if you do a burnout in your sports car Lester seen you doing this uh, you you leave uh, rubber on the road you're burning the tires out a bit 
you must you do that to your muscles and you need to replace the material in your muscles that's been damaged you can control the blood flow to the muscles and the skin you can control the rate at which that uh, repair inflammation happens with temperature because there's a natural response if you cool an area down you will reduce the blood flow temporarily a bit you will also reduce the me- metabolic rate of that tissue and if you reduce the metabolic rate its its blood flow demand will drop but also the rate of inflammation will drop so this is all about trying to control that to a level that is ideal for performance and trainers who do this a lot know what works for their athletes and uh, and that's why they do it but certainly the rationale for doing this if you if you knock your knee and then put the peas on it it definitely helps to keep the inflammation down zuki calling from big bay good morning zuki hi Mr. how are you very good very good what's your question hi dr chris hello Hi, um, I'd like you to please just clarify some what I think are myths about um, colds and flus. So um, I grew up with being told that um, you shouldn't sleep with your hair wet or else you'll catch a cold or you shouldn't go outside with your hair wet or you'll catch a cold. Or uh, one that I saw here is that constant changes in temperature, like if you keep going from hot to cold, you will catch a cold. Are these true? And if so, how? Thanks, Vicky. Uh, they're not true. Uh, these are the kinds of things that people tell you when they want kids to do as they're told when they're little, and we fall for them. But unfortunately, because they're planted into our conscious when we're young, we tend to remember them, and we're you know our heads are full of these myths that people peddle to us as youngsters to subvert us into doing things that they, that we might not want to do at the time, and they're in our best interest, but they they distort the reality to make us do them. They're what's called an old wives' tale. They're groundless. It's certainly true that if you go out and about and you get very very cold, you're not going to feel very well. But a cold as in temperature cold, being cold, is not the same as catching a cold or a flu. To do that, you have to run into the virus or the infection that's going to cause that. You're not going to do that just because your hair's wet. It doesn't magically attract flu viruses to you because you've got a wet head or you haven't got your hat on. So these are just myths, and and it's not true. There's some evidence that certain forms of of exposures can increase your risk of catching things. For example, um, people often say, take these vitamin pills, they will... uh, improve your prospects of not catching stuff well there's some limited evidence that under certain circumstances taking the right sorts of supplements can actually help under other circumstances not so much so so be very wary and always ask for the evidence is the bottom line if someone can justify if they can say it and they can justify it and they can show you why it's true then you can say fair enough i'll believe it but until they can show you the evidence you've got to be a doubting thomas here and say nope i'm not swallowing that one I've heard about this before, uh, particularly in Scandi- Scandinavian countries, in Norway. It's un- it's not unfamiliar to see a if, if parents are maybe inside a cafe to park prams with with babies still in them outside. Of course, it's a much safer country than than South Africa, but I understand that um, they do that because babies apparently sleep better. In, they're not obviously exposed directly to the cold. They're obviously wrapped in a, in 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 a blanket or something. But they but the prams are parked outside, and they say it's because babies sleep better when the temperature is cooler. Is is there any scientific basis for that? Well, our body temperature does naturally drop when we go to sleep, and this is because you don't want your metabolism going. F- 
full tilt when you're sleeping because what's the point of producing loads of energy and loads of heat when actually your body's trying to rest itself and conserve energy so certainly it's more natural to be a bit cooler and you're more likely therefore to experience natural comfortable sleep if you're a bit cooler and we've all had the experience of trying to get to sleep when we're too hot. So certainly, I think probably putting babies in an environment where they are most comfortable is conducive to them getting the most rest. And you have to just find out what works for your child, because at the end of the day, everyone's slightly different, but there's a general trend. And so generally, you find out what works for your child. It probably is true that if you put babies in a slightly cooler environment, they're going to be more comfortable, and therefore they're going to get off to sleep faster and stay asleep for longer. But at the same time, you need to work out what works for your child because if you do this and the baby's not happy, something's wrong. And so don't just assume, I do this so you should sleep better. you just got to try it. And if it works, do it. If it doesn't work, don't do it. I know you may have answered this before, but possibly people have not been listening, Chris. Uh, it says, uh, Dear Naked Scientists, with the uh, current electric power failure here in South Africa, what's the difference between a blackout and a brownout? When you cut the power off completely, and this can happen because, say, a transformer goes down, a cable breaks or a tree falls on it, and it disconnects you completely. There is no supply, there is no electricity in the lines, and everything goes dark, hence blackout. But if you overburden the distribution system and the demand exceeds the supply, it doesn't instantly trip out. It may be that certain parts of the network have under voltage. It may be that the frequency of the grid, which should be about 50 hertz in many countries, some countries use 60, but the frequency may drop a bit as the generators go under more load. But it doesn't mean there's zero electricity. It means that the supply can be intermittent or you can suffer problems of under voltage and intermittent voltage supply and we dub those brownouts and they're a reflection on a distribution network that's under strain rather than one that's been completely terminated we have evergreens that, that come through um, uh, questions that you may have covered already uh, but let's maybe go to a quick uh, voice note 0725671567 good morning this is Ricardo in Autries a question for the doctor High uric acid levels in one's body, especially in males, is it dangerous to the rest of the body, to the organs like the kidney and the liver, if not treated correctly? And is there a reason that one has to stay on maybe a tablet like Puricos for the entire duration in order to combat the high uric acid, high uric acid levels? Hyper. Again, again. Well, Sorry, well I, 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 I understand. You're going to say, look, don't don't worry about um, people. People shouldn't come to us for an on-air diagnosis, sure. Yeah. Um, but talking in general terms, what's being discussed here is what's called hyperuricemia. Uric acid is a breakdown product of certain things in the body, and certain people have higher levels of that than others, and certain diseases can cause the levels to climb even higher. Now, the body rigorously and carefully controls the levels of pretty much everything inside us. And it does that in order to maintain what's called homeostasis. In order to keep us healthy, you have to, to keep the biochemistry, the chemical reactions that are running us within tight limits. Because in the same way that if your car engine overheats, it doesn't work as well as when it's the right temperature. The body has to have the right levels of all of its chemistries. Otherwise, it doesn't work optimally. If the levels of uric acid climb too high... 
and they're outside the, ra- the realms of, of what the body tries to maintain, there can be consequences. One of the main consequences is the condition called gout. And this is where very high levels of, of uric acid in the bloodstream leads to high levels of uric acid building up in places like the fluid that separate the ends of your bones in joints. If you have very high levels of something, then you increase the likelihood of those levels precipitating out as crystals. So in other words, if you had a solution of salt on the on the table in a dish, you could dissolve a certain amount of salt, but if you reduce the amount of water or, warm, or, or cooled the water down, you might see some salt crystals beginning to form in the liquid. It's exactly the same. You get uric acid crystals in the joint, and they are intensely irritant, and they cause profound inflammation, and gout is said to be one of the most painful things that you can experience. It, it affects characteristically certain joints again and again, but almost any joint can succumb, but classically the joint on your big toe is one place people often say they, they get gout. How do we control that? Well, there are thankfully drugs that will reduce the activity of enzymes in the body that produce uric acid, so they slow down the rate at which it's metabolized into uric acid, and in that way, you can reduce the likelihood of a build-up of uric acid, and that reduces the likelihood of a build-up of uric acid in the wrong place, and therefore other consequences. Drugs like allopurinol do that, and we give those to people who have high levels of uric acid or who are undergoing treatments that could produce high levels of uric acid in the body. So the bottom line here is everything in the body is tightly and rigorously controlled in terms of its level. If you depart from what we regard as normal, then you will be engendering some kind of risk. But different things are more risky than others, and the consequences are more or less severe. Cholesterol, for example. If you have cholesterol that's too high, you're not going to instantly keel over and die, but you do shift the chances of you having a problem with a blood vessel, such as having a heart attack or a stroke, by a a certain amount depending upon how high your cholesterol level is. So uh, the answer is you just got to uh, find out what's normal for you. And if your normal isn't what we regard as the healthier normal, you try to do something about mm. it. Anne wants to know, please ask Dr. Chris whether there is any point in spending a lot of money on expensive face creams. Is the 150 Rand cream going to make more difference than that 150 Rand cream is what's the difference between expensive creams and uh and uh a normal aloe vera moisturizing cream chris well to a certain extent whenever you buy anything that's a brand you're paying for the power of that brand they spend a lot of money on advertising their brand defending their brand promoting their brand and making sure that the right people are wearing carrying around using and advertising their brand in order to convince other people to get behind that brand and that all costs a lot of money and it doesn't mean the product's absolutely brilliant it doesn't mean it's a million times better than some rival brand that no one's ever heard of it just means that it's the one people have heard of now obviously there are some brands that are absolutely brilliant and they've invested enormous amounts of money in the development in the onward development and rigorous road testing and optimization of whatever their brand is and some drugs some cosmetics they fit that bill perfectly 
others will be newcomers to the market they won't have that same track record so really there's no one size fits all here and under certain circumstances there will be certain things that really do work and they work really well and you're paying for the research and development that's gone into that and in some cases very expensive chemicals that may have been added to these things but a lot of the time we're just victims of branding and we will pay through the nose for things that really are not much better than if you were to go and buy the cheap alternative but you know as i say that is not uh, a catch-all and there are some brands which really are and do stand the test of time if you get the sort of thing i'm trying to say there uh, there are many brands that 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 really do cost a lot of money for a reason dr chris smith that's all we have time for today thank you so much looking forward to your input and your knowledge next week i hope time you stay flies well when you're having hope fun you doesn't enjoy. it time flies time i can't flies believe the time indeed. is over but uh, have a lovely weekend lester excellent chat to you next week